The Holy Gospel according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, the one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, you Christ. Christ. I also want to thank Kathy for filling in. Uh, doing a nice job, dear. A couple of weeks ago, she fell and has been wearing a um, cast on a broken bone in her wrist, so she tells me it's not hurting, but uh, she's a trooper. David, thank you also. Um, you guys had practice together. You're, a, you're an A-team. Linda Hawkins' sister is named Mary. Uh, Pam will be remembering her in the prayers. We'll also be remembering Brian Gentz, who had a fall at home, and uh, will be in our prayers as well. After Vice President Pence announced Congress's certification of the election of Joe Biden as this country's next president, which was after Congress came back in session for the purpose of doing that, after being forced out of session by that atrocious display of red, white, and blue-clad goons who, in violently forcing their way into the Capitol building, shamefully desecrated one of the most sacred spaces that precious flag they were waving and clothed in actually stands for. After the current President of the United States at a Stop the Steal rally, repeated his baseless claims of voter fraud, labeling the election of Joe Biden as an egregious assault on our democracy, and then dispatched the crowds to the Capitol with the words, we will never take back our country with weakness, which was after the president's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, had told those same crowds that it was time for trial by combat, which was after Donald Trump Jr. had warmed up the crowd by speaking over them with a message to Republicans who did not support Trump's effort to overturn the election, that message being, quote, we're coming for you. After it all, in the wee hours of Thursday morning, the Senate chaplain, 
in a closing prayer, said that the quagmire of dysfunction that threatened our democracy and led to a loss of lives and desecrated the capital has, quote, reminded us that words matter. Even ever-loyal Education Secretary Betsy DeVos agreed when in a move that surprised some, she resigned over the issue, calling the actions of the protesters unconscionable and telling the president in her letter of resignation, quote, there is no mistaking the impact your rhetoric had on the situation. Words matter. As I told our confirmation class in November when we were studying the Ten Commandments together for a few weeks, the power of words is something God devoted an entire commandment to, that being the Eighth Commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Words matter. And when they come from those with power, they matter even more powerfully. The charge given us in the Eighth Commandment is the charge to see that the power our words are powerful with is the power of what is true and what is good. Speaking of the power of words, and especially when they are spoken by power, our first reading for today from the very beginning of the Bible is the beginning of the Bible's very first creation story. It tells two of them. We're beginning with the raw material of what Genesis calls a formless void, which I kind of think it's fun to imagine as being the immediate after effects of a really big bang. From that material of this formless void, Genesis says, it is not coincidence, but God, who brings form to the formlessness, light to the dark, order to the chaos, and finally life, called first from the waters and then finally from the dirt. And what God did, God's creating with, Genesis says, were words. Let there be, God says, and there was. And what there was, God says, was good. I remind you again, words are powerful, but the charge given us throughout Scripture is the charge to make sure that the power our words are powerful with is the power of good, power that creates what is good. Speaking of God speaking, in our Gospel reading from the very beginning of Mark, it happens again. God speaks. Which, to be clear, in the Gospels isn't the norm whatsoever. For in Mark, God, as in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, has only two lines. I mean, it is almost a non-speaking part. Which actually brings some comfort to me. It makes me feel not so abnormal or spiritually deficient in those days or sometimes entire seasons in my life when God doesn't seem to be doing any speaking that I can hear either. 
In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first time God speaks in all of them is at that event because it's the first Sunday after Epiphany, and we read about this event every week on the first Sunday of Epiphany, the event that we just did read about, that being the baptism of our Lord by John the Baptizer, a story which, though well-known and oft-told, remains kind of a curious story to some in some ways, the first curiosity being, why did this event even take place? John, Scripture tells us, his baptism is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. And so the people who were baptized there in the River Jordan by John did so, Mark also tells us, confessing their sins. Jesus, Scripture tells us, was like us in every way save one, that one difference from us being that he was the human humans were always meant to be ever since they were created good by the Creator, for Jesus, like we are meant to be, but surely haven't been. Jesus was without sin. So John comes baptizing sinners, and Jesus comes to him to be baptized. Why? You want to know what? There's a lot of opinions on that. You Google away and find what you can find. Here's a thought I have. In 1997, Kathy and I led a trip to the Holy Land. Uh, we had gone there a few years earlier with a seminary group, a bunch of other pastors and spouses, and really hadn't intended to do any more than that. But some folks at, at Salem Lutheran Church in Lake Mills, Iowa, said they'd like to go to the Holy Land, and they thought it would be really nice if their pastor and his wife would lead, lead the trip, especially since they'd been there. So we did. And, of course, we visited the Jordan River. The first time we were there, just Kathy and me and, and the group from the seminary, we visited, I don't know, the Department of Tourism's official site where uh, there are paved parking lots and modern facilities and, of course, a gift shop and not rocky shores but rather a paved ramp with handrails so you can walk easily and safely down into the water. It was fine, but it felt a bit to me like a baptism theme park. When we went back to our group, uh, with our group, the next time I asked our tour guide if we could, if there was any chance we could access the Jordan maybe somewhere else, somewhere where maybe it looked just a little bit less like a tourist trap and, and more like it, maybe like it actually might have looked back at the day when Jesus baptized, John, uh, John was baptized, John baptized Jesus. He said, of course. A little later, we pulled off onto the shoulder. There was no parking lot here. Uh, we walked a few yards to the Jordan where we took off our shoes and socks, rolled up our pants, and waded in. And I then led us in a service of affirmation of baptism. Something we're going to do just here again in just a little few minutes. When I waded into the water in this wonderfully holy moment and stopped and looked down, to my left I saw a discarded car battery uh, in the waters of the Jordan River, and to my right I saw several Coke cans which had been littered there, and there were other things. Apparently others gathered at this spot for their own reasons. One might think that might have ruined the, the holiness of this moment, except it did the exact opposite for me. It was kind of strange. It magnified the, holy thought, the holiness of this moment, for this thought occurred to me like a voice in my head. Who knows, maybe God was speaking. The voice never said who it was. Of course, it could have been just me. But what I found myself thinking, hearing even, was this. 
This is actually perfect. For Jesus didn't come to kneel in the Jordan for his sin. He came to kneel in the muck, the litter, the garbage, the waste of our sin. Our sin, which in the river I imagine for us, maybe he did confess. And in all three of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's the very first thing we are told that the adult Jesus did. He knelt in the river not with his sin, but with ours. Yes, making manifest, right? This is an epiphany. As Jesus makes clear right here from the beginning that it was sin. The world's sin, mine, yours, he came to take upon himself for if he didn't, we'd be mucked up forever. As he was then coming out of the water, Mark says the heavens were torn apart and the spirit descended upon him looking like a dove. It can all seem, it can all seem really quite serene. And in Matthew and Luke's telling, you actually could you actually can imagine it serenely, but not so much Mark, because while Mark, Matthew, and Luke, in their Greek, use really a quite a gentle word that can be translated gently as the heavens opened. Mark uses a different word, which is not gentle, but even almost violent, which the NRSV therefore almost violently translates as the heavens were torn apart. Equally accurate would be ripped open. It's a clear hint, I think, another epiphany, if you will, hinting to us here at the beginning of Mark that we will not want to be surprised when what Jesus came to do would not be accomplished without violence. Not, of course, violence by him, but rather violence, skin ripped open violence, flogged and crowned and crucified upon him. That that foreshadowing of his death is something Mark surely does intend to hint at here is made evident by the fact that that quite violent Greek word translated as torn or ripped open is used a total of two times by Mark. The first being right here at the beginning of the story and the other being near the very end of the story when after Jesus breathes his last, do you remember what? The curtain of the temple the curtain separating people from the holiness of God found in the temple's holy of holies, that curtain was then, same Greek word, torn, ripped through and through from top to bottom. At his baptism, at his hinted at, with his death it was made clear, that which stands between God and sinners doesn't stand between us anymore. After the heavens tore and the Spirit descended and Jesus had come up out of the water, God the Father Almighty Creator is given the first of the two lines. God does, Mark does allow God to speak as a voice from heaven says, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. Now that's an epiphany, right? 
Something all of a sudden made way clear. Jesus is the Son of God, and Jesus is loved by God, and what Jesus is now setting out to do is so pleasing to God. Question, who was this epiphany for? Who needed to hear it? Well, Mark obviously thinks it's for us, something we need to hear, and so he tells us. But who needed to hear it first? Is there any chance, do you think, that the one this epiphany was first of all for was Jesus? I think so. For remember, he was fully human. And he had, for the first time now, just been bathed in the mucked-up water of humanity's sin. And from here, he would begin the walk that would lead him to a cross, rising up from those waters with our sin still clinging wetly to him. In other words, he was now going to walk the hardest walk any human being has ever walked, a walk the end of which, quite literally, would be hell. How much of the specifics of that he as a human fully understood or could see in advance at this moment in his life can be debated. But at the very least, I am sure he understood and foresaw that the faithful calling his faith and faithfulness were now calling him into would be very hard and the stakes would be very high. For the enemy was human sin. And sin does not ever concede without inciting violence. Here at the very beginning of the path to which he was now called, I think maybe it could be true that this epiphany moment was first of all a gift given by father to son, reminding him who he was and what he was, and that from the beginning of his faith's walk, he might know no matter what the path would bring, that who he was was God's son, and what he was was loved. Jenna is 42. She started attending Gloria Dea a year or two ago and joined a few months ago. In my first call in Dowes, Iowa, I was her pastor starting when she was five and when we knew her as Troy. Earlier this year, 42, she was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. She has fought the fight, but pancreatic cancer is damned stuff. It took my father from us 38 years ago next month. I visited Jenna on Tuesday. She lives in Victor. She drove all the way to Gloria Day on Sundays because she told her mom, because you all so welcomed her. I visited her because on Monday night her mom called me to tell me that they'd been told it was just a matter of days now. Well, what do you say? What can you say? Words. Most all the words I could think of saying sounded not powerful at all, but either like cliches or trivialities. When I got there after a while, what I finally did was sing some words. 
words we no doubt had sung together, Jenna, Troy, and I, before when, when she was five and I was in Dow's. I, I leaned up to her and I sang, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Jesus loves me, he will stay close beside me all the way. When at last I come to die, he will take me home on high. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And then I did speak some words. Looking at the journey that her faith now needed to walk, I made the sign of the cross on her forehead using the anointing oil we use at baptisms to do the same thing. And I reminded her who she was and what she was. Jenna, I said, baptized into Christ Jesus, you are a child of God, and you are loved by God. And that love, never letting you go, will not only see you through, it will also be there to welcome you home. I do not have any idea how much of that she heard. Then I, again, I do believe that sometimes God does speak. And I believe that at that very moment, in a way that she could hear, God was telling her the very same thing. You are mine. You are loved. In the waters of baptism, we believe those same words were spoken of you for your journey. You are God's child. You are loved. So, so remembering that, every morning rise with Jesus out of the water of your baptism to walk the path God calls you to walk doing what is yours to do, and speaking, saying the words that are yours to say for good. Amen.